Good morning. And again, welcome, welcome, welcome to worship here at First Presbyterian Church of Berkeley. Um, what a gift to be welcomed by someone who is newer to our community, who knows what that welcome feels like, who knows what that need feels like. Thank you, Drew, for your presence here. Um, just like all of you, we are more full, more Jesus-like, because you are among us. So thank you to Drew, thank you to all of you, whether you have long called this place home or whether you are an honored guest with us today, thank you for being with us today. It is a gift and a blessing to worship together. This summer we have been preaching through the lectionary, which is kind of like the church's syllabus with assigned texts from the Old and New Testaments to familiarize ourselves with the breadth and depth of Scripture over the course of three years. But instead of graduating at the end of those three years, we just start back again from the beginning. Like some of you grad students out there, we here in the church are perpetual students. Just like any syllabus, the beauty and challenge of the lectionary is that it demands that we read things that we might not otherwise pick up ourselves. Case in point, our scripture text today. Our gospel reading today is not a particularly flattering, nope, I'll just name it, it is a downright disturbing encounter between Jesus and a woman, a Gentile woman, a Canaanite Gentile woman. In it, we see a Jesus who is more human than we might prefer. A Jesus that mirrors ourselves, but not our best selves. But if we can resist the temptation, friends, to save Jesus, to save ourselves from embarrassment, I hope and then trust that we just might discover some new insights and dare I say some good news in this gospel for us today. With that, let us pray together. Holy God, word made flesh, we come to your scriptures open to being surprised. So silence our agendas, we pray. Banish our assumptions, cast out our casual familiarity, confront and confound our expectations. Clear the cobwebs from our ears and illuminate the corners of our hearts with your word for us today. We know that you can. We pray that you might. And we wait with great anticipation that you will. Amen. Church, our gospel reading for today is from Matthew 15, verses 21 through 28. Listen for God's word for us today. Jesus left that place and went away to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Just then, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon but he did not answer her at all. And his disciples came and urged him saying, send her away for she keeps shouting after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. 
He answered, it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed instantly. Earlier this summer, the U.S. Surgeon General, uh, Dr. Vivek Murthy, released an advisory addressing an epidemic in our midst. Not a new surge in COVID-19, though that is certainly around. Not the latest outbreak of salmonella, though there are cases. No, the nation's doctor raised the alarm about a growing public health crisis in the United States, what he calls the epidemic of loneliness and isolation. According to the advisory, even before the onset of COVID-19 pandemic, about half of U.S. adults experienced and shared their experience of measurable levels of loneliness. And that, as we can only imagine, has only increased for adults and especially for youth. In an interview with CNN, Dr. Murthy said this, I think of loneliness as a great masquerader. It can look like different things. Some people become withdrawn. Others become irritable and angry. I think the time you get concerned is when you start experiencing a feeling of loneliness for prolonged periods of time. If you feel lonely, you pick up the phone and call a friend, and then it goes away. Or you get in a car and go see a family member. That's okay. The loneliness, that loneliness is acting like hunger or thirst, a signal our body sends us when we need something for survival. It's when it persists that it becomes harmful. According to the advisory, social connection is as essential to us as food, water, and shelter. Without it, we languish physically, mentally, socially, from increased risk of heart disease and premature death to dementia and depression. He says that loneliness and isolation are plaguing us as a nation, as a people. But we really didn't need to hear this from the nation's top doctor to know it. We see it on our campuses, in our workplaces. We feel it in our homes, our communities, in our country as a whole. We are starved for not just social connection, but for belonging. Whether it is your first day in kindergarten or moving into your new dorm room on the Cal campus, whether you are starting your first day in a new job or moving into a big promotion, whether you are new to this church or have been here for decades, all of us, young and older, new and experienced, are hungry for belonging, for a place where we are welcomed and accepted as we are, for a people with whom we can share our full selves, our stories and our gifts, our passions and our particularities, our idiosyncrasies, and have them, all of them, be authentically received and honored. Belonging, 
It is a deeply human need, right alongside food and water and shelter. Our hunger for belonging can drive us to great lengths, to clubs and creeds, to political parties and college parties, to relationships, healthy and unhealthy, even to the strange place called church, even to the feet of Jesus. The Canaanite woman in our story today isn't seeking belonging per se when she crosses the boundaries of geography, gender, culture, and history to stand at the feet of Jesus. She is seeking healing for her daughter. But she won't leave until she has successfully secured both. We read that Jesus goes towards the region of Tyre and Sidon, cities on the Mediterranean coast north of Jesus' stomping grounds of Galilee. The names are lost on us today, but they were familiar and foreboding for Jesus and those in his time. This was pagan land, home to the Gentiles, those who didn't worship the God of Israel, But don't be fooled, there were plenty of Gentiles in Jesus' own neck of the woods. After all, Israel was occupied by the Romans with their pantheon of foreign gods and their emperor who was godlike. Jesus had even healed a Roman centurion's paralyzed servant just a little bit earlier in Matthew 8. But up until this point in Jesus' ministry, his mission, his ministry, as he understood it, had been to his own people. To Israel. So when he sent out his 12 disciples in Matthew 10 to preach and heal, he explicitly told them not to go into Gentile country. There was too much work to do on the home front. So when we encounter Jesus in the text today, if we read carefully, we find that he isn't actually entering into the region of Tyre and Sidon. He draws near and the Canaanite woman comes out to him. Canaanite woman, that's all that we know about her. Oh, and desperate mother. She would have had to have been desperate because she must have known how this group of Jewish men might have received her. A woman, a Canaanite woman at that. Not only was she a Gentile, her people were the despised enemies of Israel. The indigenous people who had the audacity of living in a land that the ancient Hebrews coming out of Egypt claimed was promised to them by God. History, even the history of God's people, reads differently depending on one's vantage point. There were no Canaanites living in the land in Jesus' time. It's an anachronistic term, even in the first century. An age-old label forged by history and conflict and prejudice and imposed on this woman centuries later. Maybe the weight of this label and the weight of her desperation is what caused her to shout at Jesus and the disciples that day. As an unhoused neighbor shared with me just a few weeks back, if you're ignored, talked down to, talked over long enough, well, sometimes being loud feels like the only thing you can do to finally get someone's attention, someone's help. Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. 
Her cry reveals just as much about Jesus as herself. She pleads for the mercy for herself as if the torment of her daughter is her own. There is a sermon there about solidarity. There's no difference between her suffering and that of her daughter. Not only that, she recognizes Jesus, not just with the customary respect of Lord or Sir befitting a man and a rabbi. She calls him Son of David. Even before Jesus' disciples, she grasps that Jesus is the awaited one, the Messiah come to save his people, even if she is not one of them. But Jesus doesn't answer her. Literally, the text says that he did not say a single word. But his disciples aren't confident that the silent treatment will take care of this particular woman, so they urged him to send her away because she keeps shouting after them. Now, it's unclear whether the disciples are asking Jesus to help her, to grant her request so that she may then go along her way, or to just plain get rid of her. But either way, their motivation seems to be one and the same, to be relieved of her, to expedite the interruption, to minimize the awkwardness of this outsider whose request disrupts their primary in-house mission. So Jesus says as much. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It's Jesus' way of saying, my services are not for the likes of you. Now maybe, just maybe, we can give Jesus the benefit of the doubt here. The needs of Israel are great. Just a little bit before this in Matthew, he'd said to his disciples that the harvest was plentiful, but the workers few. There's more work to do in the flock than Jesus and his disciples could feasibly take care of. It's not personal, it's a matter of strategy, stewardship, resources. Maybe, just maybe, Jesus is working from the assumption that to tend the sheep of Israel would be the means of reaching those outside the flock. But first things first. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. Nevertheless, she persisted. Like the Magi, those foreign Gentiles who traveled from afar to kneel at Jesus' feet in worship at his birth, this woman kneels before Jesus. She offers perhaps one of the truest prayers in Scripture and our lives. Lord, help me. She's disinterested and undeterred by Jesus' response. She seems to say, I don't know your mission. And I don't particularly care about your vision statement or tagline, how many people gather for your preaching or how many souls your disciples have evangelized to. I am here and I need your help. It's raw and it's poignant and it's moving. Lord, help me. Which makes Jesus' response all the more troubling. It's not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. Oof. It's about here that some of us are ready to snap those Bibles closed, to write off this story and maybe even Jesus in general, 
while others of us are ready to double down, to pull out our commentaries and find a way to make sense of, to tame Jesus's harsh, harsh words. If you're like some biblical scholars and pastors, you may say, well, in the original Greek, kinarnia means small dogs or house dogs. So maybe Jesus is calling her a puppy. We are unsatisfied with this translation. However we spin it, the impact remains. Jesus' behavior towards this woman is deeply disturbing. First the silent treatment, then exclusion, now insults. Jesus seems to be uncomfortably playing by an old inherited script. Gratefully, the Canaanite woman isn't afraid to flip the script. She sees a way to literally turn the tables on Jesus, and she does. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Perhaps she's a dog, but that still puts her under his roof, in his house, under his table, and even the crumbs are enough for her. Friends, this is a turning point in the story and in Jesus' mission as he understands it. For the first time in the text, we read that Jesus answered her. Up until this point, Jesus' response aren't directed to anyone particular. It almost seems like he's talking to himself. But now he responds to her directly. Oh, woman, great is your faith. Jesus sees her, stops and sees her, not as a Canaanite, not as a dog, as a woman, as a human, and he commends her faith, her tenacity in grasping what members of the household of Israel have yet to grasp, what he himself has not yet fully grasped, that the mission of God, his mission, is not just to Israel, for those seated comfortably at the table, but for all people. I promised you some good news at the outset. <clears throat> so here it is at long last. There is bread and room enough for all at the table. Israelite and Canaanite, the oppressed and the oppressor, the religious and the skeptic, the wealthy and the poor, the housed and the unhoused, the Cal-educated, uneducated, and Stanford-educated, <laughs> the Republican and the Democrat, male and female and non-binary, queer and straight and every other form, all, all have a place at the table. And in God's divine economy, the crumbs and the loaves multiply and the belonging of one does not displace the belonging of another. The old script is flipped. Jesus' understanding of his mission is radically and irreversibly expanded. Why? Because of the presence and need of this one who seemingly fell outside the scope of his ministry, his strategy, his capacity. Church, who is coming to us and shouting for help? Silently or sometimes literally for a few crumbs of welcome, of healing, of belonging, a place at the table. How do we greet them? 
Can they find a home here truly? Does our understanding of our mission need to expand? The mission of God, the mission of Jesus, and therefore his church, us, includes radical belonging. Not because it's a good growth strategy or even because the Surgeon General tells us it's good for our health. We do it because it has always been God's mission. Even if Jesus and especially his church are a bit slower and catching on. This year at First Press, we want to get in on God's ancient mission of radical belonging in new ways. To notice how God, scripture, and the community itself are inviting us to expand our understanding of God's open table and how we show up for one another and the hungry ones showing up in our midst. How? Well, for starters, we're going to lean into holy disruption and give ourselves space around the table. On September 10th, we'll kick off a new Sunday schedule with worship at 10 a.m. Now, let me be clear. This slight shift, moving our worship services 30 minutes earlier, isn't actually the point. <laughs> it is what it makes room for. Spacious time to gather around the table for radical belonging. So what will this look like? On the first Sundays of the month, Communion Sundays, we'll turn from the Lord's table to the lunch table with a community meal, a space that is intentionally, financially accessible and welcoming for all. On these Sundays, there won't be competing programs or meetings, agendas. Our priority is gathering around the table together as the whole family of God. The other Sundays of the month, following worship, children, youth, and adults are invited to gather around tables and groups and classes to experience and explore our belonging to God and one another in community. This year, instead of having a smorgasbord of classes for adults to choose from, all are invited to sit together. Pastors and community members, newcomers and longtime members of the Michael Barrel entourage, extroverts and a healthy dose of introverts in reflecting together on the practices of those who follow a God who is radically hospitable. Throughout this year-long adult formation series, which we're calling A Place at the Table, we will fumble and falter, drop our forks and hopefully feed our souls, but ultimately, I pray, walk away more fully grasping our own place at the table and God's mission, and therefore our mission, of making room for all. If this sounds like a tall order, if you're not sure where, where to start, well, curiosity is a pretty good place, which is where we'll begin this fall in worship and stay for the whole year asking questions. This fall, guided by the book of Exodus, will turn to the simple questions we ask each other, like, what's your name? And where are you from? To those deeper ones, like, when was the last time you changed your mind? And what do you care about? Our hopes in all of this through our questions in worship and conversations around the lunch and discussion tables is this, that we might experience and extend the radical belonging we have in God. Church, 
God is in the unsettling business mission of adding leaves to the table, meeting outsiders and granting them not just crumbs, but a place at the table. Whether we come as those who know our seat is reserved, or I suspect more often than not, are hungry for just a few crumbs of belonging. May we, like the Canaanite woman, know that there is bread enough for you, for me, for us. And may we, as a church, continue to expand our mission and table, like Jesus, to all those who come our way. That in the welcoming and sharing of bread and life, we all may discover our place at the table as both guest and host. And all God's people said, amen.